As we come now to the preaching of God's holy word, I ask that you would take up your copy of his holy word and turn with me to Lamentations and into, in particular, into chapter 3. And while we will be covering, at some level, the totality of this book in God's Word, this morning I will read from chapter 3, verses 1 through 32. Hear now the Word of God. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and again throughout the day. He has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He has been to me a bear lying in wait, like a lion in ambush. He has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. He has caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. I have become the ridicule of all my people. Their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. He has also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul from far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished. From the Lord. Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach, for the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our gracious Father in heaven, we, we have humbly approached your throne of grace, giving thanks to you for the year that you have given to us. We have confessed our sins as we seek your mercy and forgiveness, for your mercy is great, and you are ever faithful to your covenant promises. We have come before you collectively in the moment and prayed for our sister, and she has walked out under her own power, and we give you thanks. As we come before your holy word, be pleased by the work of your Holy Spirit to bring understanding 
conviction, truth, and wisdom. Teach us to lament rightly according to your will. And give us a desire to do so that this revealed pattern from your word would bring comfort, repentance, and hope in every trial of life. And this we ask in the mighty name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. So here we come to Lamentations. I think I've long heard that this is not one of those books that we like to dwell upon or spend time in, and yet I think it's a a book that we need to glean the wisdom of God from. And, And the challenge is, when you want to cover an entire book of the Bible, what to do, where to go, what to focus on. There is far more to this book than we will cover today. But my prayer is that the Lord will use it in a particular way. And so as we begin this morning, I found this quote, and I thought it was particularly apt and helpful. In his small book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis observed this, We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities, and anyone who has watched gluttonous shoveling down of the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating, will admit that we can even ignore pleasure. But pain, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. End quote. But the question is, how do we respond in the face of pain and unbearable grief? How do we respond in times of judgment, exile, suffering, and persecution? While there's not one single response that fits every situation, there is one part of our response that can can, and more often should be included, and that is lament. And as we turn our attention to the book of Lamentations this morning, I'd like for, to encourage us, all of, all of us here gathered this morning, to consider more seriously the importance and the role of lament and how it should play that role in our lives. And to that end, I hope that this overview of Lamentations serves less as a once-and-done message and more of a beginning, a point at which we begin to grow more and more in our understanding of and our capacity for biblical lament. And I know some of you like to know where the message is going. You like an outline so that you can see where we are. So very briefly, we're going to have five-ish parts to this message, I believe. First, I'll cover some background to the, the book itself, and we'll talk about the structure and literary form And then we'll just march chapter by chapter through all five chapters of Lamentations. And so as you read Lamentations, and I hope that several of you have taken that opportunity this week as I landed a pretty straightforward hint, it is important for you to understand the background of the book. Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah as he reflected upon the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. After the reign of King David and Solomon, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, 
the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. The northern kingdom was led by one wicked king after another, and after ignoring repeated warnings from the prophets to turn back to God, Israel was conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C. Judah eventually followed the same path of spiritual rebellion as God's people turned to idolatry, injustice, immorality, and corruption. And during this time, Babylon sieged a three-year, staged a three-year siege of Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern kingdom. The people suffered starvation. The city wall was breached and the Babylonian army ransacked the capital, burned the temple, and tore down the walls surrounding the city of David. Everything of value was taken to Babylon, and those who survived the invasion became exiles and slaves. The once beautiful temple and city was left in ruins. And that is the point in time that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. Every part of the Bible, not the least its poetry, repays the effort of working out how it is put together. We need to read Scripture in the context and in the form that it was written. And the book of Lamentations is a collection of five poems. Chapter 1 describes the destruction and misery of Jerusalem, particularly in contrast to her former glory. Chapter 2 emphasizes that the catastrophe had occurred because of the Lord's wrath. And so the only hope of relief for the city must originate with Him. Chapter 3 has a more personal tone, arguing the relevance of the Jeremiah's own experience. Though repeating many of the same themes found elsewhere in the book, it especially centers on the existence of the divine steadfast love God has said which gives genuine basis for hope for the future. The chapter draws on the experience of the Psalms of individual lament in which, despite suffering from these horrifying circumstances, an individual attains a new sense of orientation toward God. Chapter 4 then descends from the pinnacle of faith achieved in chapter 3 by plunging back into the anguishing details of the catastrophe It does end, however, with the anticipation of future reversal of the circumstances. And chapter 5 is a prayer from beginning to end, ending with an affirmation of the Lord's eternal rule and His righteousness, and with a plea that He intervene effectively. The book ends without final resolution, ending with an affirmation of the Lord's eternal rule, Therefore, Lamentations is like a song that ends with a sustained minor note hanging in the air for an uncomfortably long time. You see, in Lamentations, there is not always immediate, quick, or even complete resolution of our suffering. The literary form and structure of the book is also significant and needs to be taken into consideration. Chapters 1, 2, and 4 are written as an acrostic. The first letter of each verse is a successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Therefore, you will find 22 verses in each of these chapters. Some of your copies of the Bible may reflect this and make it obvious. In chapter 3, the very high point of the book is written in a triple acrostic. Three verses for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
The acrostic is a poetic form designed to emphasize the comprehensive nature of Jerusalem's destruction and serves as a tool of remembrance. We could say that Jeremiah desires for his readers to see the judgment and suffering of Jerusalem from A to Z and to remember what the Lord has done. And while chapter 5 also has 22 verses, it is not written as an acrostic, but rather as a prayer. Lamentations has been written as a whole, not just a disparate, disconnected collection of five poems. And this may be seen more clearly as we observe the overall structure in which we find a chiastic outline of the book, where the focal point or the apex of the of the chiasm is in those very verses looking toward God's great faithfulness and his mercies found in verses 21 through 24 of chapter 3. I've included an outline showing this chiastic structure if you care to take a look toward the end of your liturgy and see what I am referring to in more detail. I won't be stepping through that but for those of you who may not be familiar that would be one possible way to outline Lamentations as a chiasm. I've also included a table illustrating the chapter-by-chapter structure and progress of the book, as well as an illustration of the Hebrew acrostic form of the first four verses of chapter 1, just for reference. So as readers of God's Word in the English language, it is important for us to remember that it is indeed written as a poem, maybe not a poem that we're terribly familiar with, not the rhyme scheme that we would tend to see and look for in a poem, but it is written as a poem nonetheless so that God's people may more fully see, feel, and know what he is revealing to them. Poetry carries a message deeper into our souls than mere prose. It's not written simply as a eulogy which pays tribute to the past, nor was it initially designed to be a liturgical response for present and future generations to ponder the experiences of the past. Rather, it addressed the needs of those who survived the collapse of Jerusalem as they struggled to cope with their ongoing suffering and their intense grief. Each chapter of the book is set against this somber background of destruction, desolation, and agony. It is significant to note what Jeremiah does not invite his readers to do here and that is to sit in judgment over Jerusalem. He makes no attempt to condone or excuse her past rebellion and sin. The justice of what the Lord has imposed on her is accepted, but with prolonged grief. What Jeremiah does do and invites us to participate in is to feel along with her in an attitude of sympathy and love while simultaneously pointing out a way back to the enjoyment of a right relationship with God. It was a time of uncertainty, and Jeremiah does not allow allow that uncertainty to be resolved by easy words. He is well aware that the future would be determined by the character and purposes of God. And so we'll start with chapter 1. And as we briefly survey chapter 1, we are introduced to the lamentable state of affairs of Jerusalem's desolation. And we see this revealed in a dialogue between Jeremiah as the one who is observing and commenting on the situation and Jerusalem 
portrayed as a sorrowing, lonely, and groaning widow. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who is great among the nations. The princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. Verses 1 through 3. And then in verse 5, Jeremiah makes the first observation that this is the Lord's doing because of Judah's sin. Her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. And again in verse 8, Jerusalem has sinned gravely, therefore she has become vile. As the objective observer here, Jeremiah speaks not only of the desolation he beholds, but he also points to the reason for the desolation. God's righteous judgment has come upon His people. The people are suffering and facing the judgment of God because of their sin. Despite being God's chosen people and the object of His covenant love, the kingdom of Judah reached a point where the scales of divine justice had tipped. And so what did God do? God leveled His own temple. He scattered His own people. He ruined His own city. Judah believed they could do whatever they wanted with God's commandments. They abandoned the giver of all their blessings. They were dismissive of God's rule in their life. And it led them to this moment. Their sin, sinfulness led to their brokenness. The cause of this destruction is therefore central to this message we find in Lamentations. And then the dialogue shifts partway through verse 11, and it is now that Jerusalem, personified as a widow who speaks, see, O Lord, and consider. And here we find the first important step in the process of godly lament, turning to the Lord. Our natural temptations include trying to remedy the situation in our own strength and wisdom, or even turning inward and wallowing in self-pity. But biblical lament rejects these fleshly impulses and calls us to turn to the Lord. And as Lady Jerusalem does this, she is utterly honest in the pains of her grief. She is scorned and filled with sorrow. She is crushed and trampled underfoot. She weeps with heavy tears. She has been deceived and abandoned. She is mocked instead of comforted. She sighs and her heart is faint. These are the real emotions of lament. The pain is real. The grief is real. The weeping is real. And so the emotions are real and they are acknowledged. Biblical lament gives us permission to experience the process and process through these emotions. And it is a process that can take a long, long time sometimes even a lifetime. And yet, I think we need to confess that most of us are uncomfortable with these types of emotions. 
Have you sat with someone who is truly grieving? Have you gone to speak with someone who has just gone through a tragedy and find that you're uncomfortable? You don't know how to deal with it. You don't have the words to say. And at the same time, you want to encourage them. You want to bring a word that would lift their spirits. And yet there are times and in certain situations where in lament, time is a key factor. We can't rush these things. We always point, point them to God. But permission needs to be granted to experience these emotions. But note what Lady Jerusalem says in verse 18. The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against His commandment. And this is the second important step in the process of godly lament. Acknowledging God's righteousness and the presence of sin. And this step is over, often overlooked or minimized. Why do we struggle with with simply and fully owning and confessing our sin. And and that's a question I would love to just let it hang out there in the air for a moment. Why do we struggle so much in simply and fully owning and confessing our sin? The Lord is righteous. He is ultimately righteous. And He is righteous in His judgments, even when they seem harsh and beyond our comprehension. For I have rebelled against His commandments, Jerusalem declares. There are no ifs. There are no buts appended in this acknowledgement of sin. And so the question is, is this the way that you, is this the way that I acknowledge my sin? How often have you heard or said, if I have offended you, I'm sorry. Or... I apologize for hurting your feelings, but I didn't mean to. Or please forgive me if I have sinned against you. Do you hear the if and do you see the but in those? Such statements diminish the extent of our guilt, limit our responsibility, and fail to acknowledge the holy God who is the one we have ultimately sinned against. I know that it is a habit And that we mean well when we use such words, but it is a habit that we need to break. The Lord Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty due our sins. And so is a genuine and complete acknowledgement of our sin not the right response? And in chapter 2, Jeremiah further reveals the Lord's anger and wrath against Judah's sins. While I did not focus in chapter 1 upon the chiastic structure that is there. There there is a chiasm within a chiasm. Here in chapter 2, it's it's even more obvious, so I'll point it out. Um, In chapter 2, it begins with God who is in the day of His anger in verses 1, and it also ends with those words. And He shows no pity in verses 2 and 21. And he brings about a dreadful devouring in verse 3 and a worse one in 20. And so it continues in a strict poetic sequence that is filled with dreadful descriptions. And we find the hinge of the chiasm at the center of this text in verse 11. Bile poured out, faint in the streets, mirrored by swoon in the streets, and life poured out in verse 12. And moving towards the center of this 
poem or ten verses in which Jeremiah describes objectively what God has been doing to the city. And then all at once in the two hinge verses, he becomes one with the citizens and sits where they sit. Whereas he had been speaking about them, now for the remaining ten verses, he speaks to them. And I think that's an interesting perspective to ponder. And you will need to be a careful reader of your English translations, or at least most of them, to notice something interesting here in chapter 2. I think we're all well uh, keyed in to Lord being spelled two different ways in our English translations with the lowercase, in which in this instance being translated at, from Adonai, and an uppercase, which is his proper name, Yahweh. So notice in verse 1 how the Lord, Adonai, has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. And in verse 2, the Lord, Adonai, has swallowed up and not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. In verse 5, the Lord, Adonai, was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds and has increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. And in verse 7, the Lord Adonai has spurned his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord Yahweh as on the day of a set feast. So why Adonai first and only later and sporadically Yahweh? It's a bit speculative perhaps, but as it is as Adonai, the master the, the sovereign Lord of all nations that God now comes to Jerusalem. Her privilege has been compromised. Israel must now face God's wrath. God has even prepared to destroy the throne and the temple which represent His presence in Mount Zion, which of course bear His name, Yahweh, in verses 6, 7, and 8. The prophetic word comes from Yahweh in verse 17 but the suffering Jerusalem feels she has lost the old relationship and can only cry out, Adonai, in verses 18 and 19. So while I said that's a bit speculative, it is there in God's Word, and it causes us to stop and think and ponder what might be trying to be communicated there. In the words which Jeremiah puts into Jerusalem's mouth in verses 20 through 22, do remind her, that this is still, in fact, Yahweh, as well as Adonai, with whom she must plead the consequences of his original covenant, will in the end override the consequences of her sin. And that should be a great comfort. And that brings us to chapter 3. Everything in Lamentations builds up to this next all-important chapter. Chapter 3 is the climax of the book. Here, its acrostic structure changes instead of a verse starting with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The same letter begins three verses before a new set of verses with the subsequent letter, creating an intensified triple acrostic. And in this, we see both Jeremiah's grief and God's said, his steadfast covenant love. Mark Vrogrop observes that Jeremiah does not merely lament his pain and disappointment. He uses his song of sorrow to point his heart toward what he knows to be true, despite what he sees. In effect, he says, even in the leveling of Jerusalem, God is still in control. Despite the destruction of Jerusalem, His mercies never come to an end. 
God's faithfulness is still great. And this is where biblical lament is transformative. It not only gives voice to the pain you feel, but also anchors your heart to truths you believe or are trying to believe when dark clouds linger. Something bad may have happened in your life, but whatever the reason, whatever the reason, loss can feel like a wasteland. It is devastating. But lament helps us to reverse, rehearse biblical truth so hope will return. Despite what you see, despite what you feel, despite what you think, lament can be a supply of grace as you affirm that God's mercies are new every day. End quote. In chapter 3, we find two differing perspectives in tension, which we should expect in experiencing our lamentation through the trials of life. In the first 16 verses, Jeremiah declares in pain and grief, which culminates in verses 17 and 18 with, You have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. And I said, My strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Those are heavy, sad words. There is despair, hopelessness, and even complaint. And this is the first perspective. But then in verses 55 through 58, Jeremiah writes, I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my sign and my cry for help. You drew near on the day I called you and said, Do not fear. O Lord, you have pleaded the case for my soul. You have redeemed my life. Where verses 1 through 20 are dark and hopeless, verses 21 through 66 reveal an emerging level of trust and hope. In the first part of this poem, the suffering has become personal and overwhelming. There seems to be no peace or happiness or endurance or hope. The grief is relentless. Jeremiah has reached bottom. We see honest, raw emotions. However... The perspective changes. As honest as Jeremiah is with pain, he does not stay there. The city is still destroyed. The people are still in pain. But something has changed. There's still suffering and struggle. But the tone, the tone is different. And that leads to an important question, one that is central to the spiritual value of lament. What changed for Jeremiah in that moment? And it is on either side of this change that we find the next two steps in biblical lament. Complaint and remembrance. First, the scriptures give us permission to bring our complaint before God. And it shows us how to do so rightly. Jeremiah complains, you have moved my soul from peace. And so after we take the first two steps of turning to God and acknowledging the righteousness of God and the presence of sin, the next step is to bring our complaints to Him. And there's a bit of tension in our spirits as we consider this. Complain. Consider the word complain. Consider the action of complain. It is not a positive word. We are wont to use that. We don't like complainers and it even seems like the wrong response As Christians, it seems like we're trained to never complain, but there are times where complaint is necessary and good. 
Is it wrong to complain to God? Have you complained to God as you pray through the Psalms? But I don't believe it's always wrong. And as we embrace the full counsel of Scripture, we see that it can't be wrong. Jeremiah brought his complaint, and as you read the Psalms, you will find a wide variety of complaints. I've even included a list of some of these toward the back of the liturgy. We often see these complaints beginning with the words, Why or how? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Now, don't misunderstand me. This doesn't give you permission to pour out your your selfish rage at God when life has not turned out the way you believe that it should have turned out. I'm not saying you have a right to be angry with God, for that is always wrong. If you're going to offer a complaint to God, it must be done with a humble heart. Proud, demanding questions from a heart that believes it is owed something from God will never, will never benefit from true lament. Before you start complaining, be sure you have checked your pride at the door and come with your pain. Come with your pain, but not your pride. And this has been said many times from this pulpit, but we need to learn to pray the words of Scripture. And this is especially true as we are trying to learn to bring a complaint in our lament. Once again, I refer you to the back of the liturgy where I've listed and included a list of psalms of lament that can help shape and guide your prayers in times of grief, in times of sorrow. And let's not forget to be honest. We need to be honest as we come before the Lord. Biblical complaint requires you to be honest with God about your pain, about your situation, your fears and your frustrations. You need to talk to Him as a loving Father. Remember that you have a Savior who understands your struggles. As we read in Hebrews, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but it was in all points, he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's all a part of lamentation. And the next all-important step in biblical lament is we need to remember God's faithfulness and His mercy. In verses 21 through 24, this climax, this apex, this high point of the entire book, we read, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him. And it is at this point that most people will fall into two camps when they are walking through their suffering, when they are in the midst of grief and suffering. And those two camps are anger and denial. 
Some people are so filled with anger at God that they live in a self-made prison of despair and bitterness for the rest of their lives. How sad. Is that not sad to ponder? Their, Their pain, we understand somewhat their pain, but this pain gives rise to rage and their spiritual life is never the same. And sadly, grievously, sometimes it even results in a complete rejection of the faith as pain gives way to unbelief. Still others think that godliness means a call to stoicism. Put on a happy face and carry on. They try to project an air of contentment that is simply, in truth, denial. Everything is fine, they say, but everyone knows that it isn't. But the good news is, biblical lament points us to an alternative. Through godly complaint, we express our disappointment and move toward resolution. We complain based upon our belief in who God is and what He can do. We start in humble complaint and quickly move to remembering God's faithfulness and His mercy. And more than likely, that movement is a cycle that will be repeated often when there is deep pain. Lament is how those who know what God is like and believe in Him address their pain. God is good, but life is hard. Said another way, lament lament is the language of a people who believe in God's sovereignty, but live in a world riddled with tragedy. We must learn to trust in the promises of God while we struggle through the tears. That brings us to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we see that the Lord's anger has accomplished its aim. And this is made clear in the final verse, verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no longer send you into captivity. He will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will uncover your sins. In punishing the iniquity of Jerusalem and Judah... God is uncovering their sins, and chief among those sins is the sin of idolatry. Chapter 4 begins by lamenting the loss of the security and glory of Jerusalem's wealth. How the gold has become dim. How changed the fine gold. The stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. And I think we all know that wealth can be a source of power and pride. It provides security, it creates a density, it gives options. And if we are not careful, money can also be the source of idolatrous self-sufficiency. The security of money or the fear of financial loss can easily become a functional God in our lives. And it is hardship or financial stress that often reveal an idolatrous fixation with the security that money provides. Why see this as idolatry? Consider this definition I found helpful from Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. 
And so it is not just money that can become an idol. In verse 2, we see a reference that infers that men have been treated like saviors. There were no leaders left who could bring a remedy to their desolation. And the following verses reveal a mourning for the loss of creature comforts, for delicacies and fine clothing. And verses 13 through 17 reveal that the prophets and the priests had abandoned their posts, defiled themselves with sin, and thus were no saviors either. The picture that Jeremiah paints is grim indeed, but you need to see that there is a glimmer of hope here. In verse 22, Jeremiah promises that God will not prolong his people's exile any longer than necessary. Their punishment for their iniquity is finished. It is accomplished. He will no longer send them into captivity. He will punish their iniquity and uncover their sins. And the unearthing and destruction of idols is part of God's overall plan. When hardship and pain reveals our idols through godly and biblical lament, we can see more clearly the misplaced objects of our trust. Where idols have sprung up in our lives, and pain helps us to see who we are and what it is that we truly love. And that brings us to the end, to chapter 5, Jeremiah's prayer. The final chapter here opens, Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Remember, as used here, is a request for God to intervene based on His love and His promises. It is a call for God to act, and the Bible frequently connects God's redemption to this gracious remembering. We need to be a people who remember God's good works. We need to remember what He has revealed to us in His Word and call them to mind often and especially in times of despair and suffering. And connected to this appeal is the feeling of shame. And that's why He says, Look and behold our reproach. How often, how often do you find that you try to hide your tears? It's embarrassing. Hardship is humbling. And in Jerusalem's case, suffering devastated their temple, humiliated their leaders, destroyed their city, and ruined their nation. But instead of running from the shame of sorrow, lament embraces it. Lament looks through such tears to the grace of God's remembrance. And then in verses 2 through 18, Jeremiah rehearses a long list of Israel's troubles. But in verse 18, he declares, You, O Lord, remain forever your throne from generation to generation. Biblical lament always remembers God's sovereignty in dark times. But as we said at the beginning, the book of Lamentations ends without resolving the destruction of Jerusalem, but it points its readers in the right direction. Suffering lingers. The temple still lies in ruins. There is more pain and suffering to come, but the answer has not yet arrived. And yet the book ends with a hopeful prayer. Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. Does this sound like a hopeful prayer to you? I think it is. Why else would someone pray this way? Yet there is also humility of acknowledging the sovereign will of God in this short prayer. 
And consider the boldness of Jeremiah's prayer. Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old. That former glory that is in ruin and scattered, that's what we want. It is here that we find the final two steps of biblical lament. Ask boldly and choose to trust God while praying, prayerfully waiting. So, dear friends, pray with boldness. Specifically call upon God to act in a manner consistent with His character, and that resolves your complaint. And as you persistently lay your petitions before God, choose to trust Him. His timing is not your timing. And we have to remember that the minor note in some parts of the song of life are often sustained for a long, long time. And while this message has been focused on how we are to respond in biblical lament during our personal times of pain and sorrow, once we see and understand that personal perspective, I believe that we will also be equipped to comfort and to minister effectively to those who are suffering around us. It is all, it is all connected. We are all connected. When one suffers, we all suffer. Lament is the language of a people who know God's wonderful story, the gospel story. They know how the entrance of sin into the world brought death and suffering. And as we conclude this look into the book of Lamentations, it is a good reminder that the message of the gospel is where lament should lead. The sorrow of loss can and should lead us to the man of sorrows because Jesus is the answer to the cause of every pain. Every sorrow, every tear, and every loss gives evidence of the brokenness caused by sin. Something is terribly wrong in this world, and you know what it is. And something is terribly wrong inside each one of us, and we know what that is. As Christians, we know that sin creates the pain behind lament. Once again, as Vogrop observes, however, under the dark clouds of brokenness, God offers mercy. The Son of God was sent on a mission to become a man, be perfectly obedient, and die on a cross to provide restoration. On the cross at Calvary, Jesus bore the wrath of God for those who would trust Him, for those whom the Father gave to Him. It was the darkest day in human history, and yet it changed everything. After three days, the empty tomb testified to Jesus' victory. The resurrection of Christ signaled the coming defeat of the devil and even of death itself. And with this victory, the Christian's view of pain and suffering in this present life is transformed. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which was revealed in us, as we read earlier from Romans chapter 8. We, along with all creation, groan groan, lament even as we eagerly wait the future day when Christ's victory will be complete. We lament and we embrace this biblical language of sorrow as a roadmap to God's grace. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, as we prayed early, earlier, so we pray again. Teach us the way of godly lament. 
While we don't desire difficulties and trials or pain and sorrowing, we acknowledge them as a part of this life. Therefore, we pray that every trial of life, every heartache, tragedy, and loss, through every travail, through every sorrow and pain, O Lord, lead us to the cross of Christ and sustain us by your all-sufficient grace. Grant us patience as we wait and a sure hope in your promises as we trust in your perfect providence. And so this we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom. For we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.